If you feel resistance to anything I'm about to say this morning, which means you probably will feel resistance about things we're going to say this morning. If you find yourself resisting or feeling resistance to things we say this morning, instead of getting upset with me about what I say, ask yourself why what I said bothers you. And I would even encourage you to take it one step further. If something I say bothers you or offends you or upsets you, write it down and then in your journal, in your journey guide this week, spend some time thinking about why that offended you. To my best, my best understanding, this is all biblical information I'm going to share today. So I'm not trying to offend unnecessarily, but I will be pushing us, and worship is one of the areas I really hope we grow in and, and kind of start to extend ourselves in over the coming months and years, that worship would really become one of the hallmark characteristics of our church. But if we're going to worship, we need to have an understanding of worship God's way instead of our understanding of worship. And how worship is taught in our world today is that it's a product. It's a, it's a product and, and we choose from the products that we like and then that's how we decide either what church we go to or, or how we worship. Now we're going to talk a little bit about our personal worship style and our corporate worship style and all that, especially in the week ahead and the devotionals. Um, but, but for the most part, we have made worship a product or a service that we compare and contrast like we do cable service and other services that we buy. But that's not what it is at all. It's the, it's the byproduct or it's what my life produces. It's, what, it's the fruit of a life fully surrendered, submitted, and committed to Jesus. So if you find yourself resisting, when you start to feel that, that resistance creep up, Stop for a minute before you go too far down the road of resisting and getting upset or angry and just write it down, why am I feeling resistance to this idea? Now, we've talked about this before, but fierce independent thinking does not exist in the kingdom of God. It is the hallmark attribute of American uh, living and, and the American dream is all about independent living, but that doesn't exist in the kingdom. Two years ago at the campout, we were doing the campout, and and uh, and it was the one time it rained. Anyone was anyone there when it rained? Yeah, it rained. The one we had, we were in a drought, right? And we we were in this drought for 35 days, no rain. Then we had the campout, and it rained, and then it didn't rain for another 30 or 40 days. So. The only time it rained was, was this one Sunday morning and people uh, didn't have, I won't name any names, but some people didn't have their rain flies on their tents and so they got wet overnight. So most of us by Sunday morning were pretty well soaked and probably fussy and angry. Now, because my kids were excited, they uh, to have, the, and they love having the church over to our house and to spend some time out there uh, in nature. They were, they had talked about the waterfall. You guys remember this? Remember talking about the waterfall? There was a waterfall on the farm. 
And so they had talked about this waterfall and they had told people about, about the waterfall that was on the farm. And, and over the course of the 24 hours, people wanted to see this waterfall. Despite my explanation that there wouldn't be much to see when we got there because we had been in a drought, it had been dry for months, and so we might be walking and hiking through the woods to see nothing, people still wanted to, on Sunday morning when we were soaking wet, hike down the road to the trail. So we started hiking down to the trail, and it's actually, it's not, it's not an, an easy hike. It goes down quite a ways. And anyone, was anyone on the hike to the waterfall? Anyone remember being on that hike? I know Hannah was okay. So, so we hiked down the road, down the logging road, to get to the trail that leads to the waterfall. And so we hiked down the road, and then the trail actually is an elk trail that you walk down, and it's pretty steep and not easy to walk on, and it's muddy when it rains, and so it's a little bit treacherous. So we go down this elk trail until we get down to John Creek, which is what runs through the bottom of the farm there. And so we're down at the edge of John Creek, and there's water running. You can hear water running, but we hadn't been down there yet that summer to do any exploring or to carve out the trail. So when you get down to the, to the flat spot at the bottom of where John Creek is, you actually have to walk through briars and weeds and you know, all kinds of vine maple and little alders that are springing up there in the wet bed of the creek. And unless you knew where the waterfall was, there would be no way to find the waterfall when you got down there. So I had to make a new trail. As we were walking towards the waterfall, I was, I was stepping on branches and I was stepping on little maple trees that had grown up and just kind of squashing stuff out of the way to make, make a path for everyone who had come with us to see the waterfall. And it's just a little narrow path that we could kind of squeeze our way through and you walk through the briars a little bit and then you have to turn a little bit this way and then there's this log and you have to step up on this log and then you have to walk through and then you have to kind of step on this log and then walk down the log a little bit and turn to the right. And then once you get up here, you can finally see the waterfall. And of course, just like I promised, when we got to the log where you stood on the log and you should be able to see the waterfall, you could see the rock that the water should be coming down, but there was no water on it. But one by one, the people who stuck with us on the journey came down the path, they stepped up on the log, so they could equally be disappointed by the dried up waterfall, right? Now, if you didn't know where the waterfall was, our kids knew where it was, but they might even have a hard time finding their way to the waterfall, but they had been able to get there themselves. But if you don't know where it was, you, you might have a difficult, difficult time finding it. Hebrews chapter two, verse 10. And this is an idea Jim started talking about bringing up when his Monday night Bible study was going through the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 2.10, and bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, 
for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. The pioneer of their salvation, that word pioneer can also be trailblazer. So Jesus was the pioneer of our salvation. He blazed the trail. He charted the course. We, we could not blaze our own trail. We aren't charting our own course of salvation, our own course of discipleship, our own course of following Jesus. Jesus has actually already blazed the trail for us to follow. So we look at the trail Jesus has already carved out for us, and then we follow it. This is why we're talking about becoming like Christ. So we don't necessarily know how to get where Jesus is going. In fact, if we knew how to get where Jesus was leading us, we wouldn't have needed Jesus to come and show us the way. Where we stand, where we are, we may not be able to see or hear the final destination. So... We have to put our trust in God and take him at his word that he through Christ is leading us where he wants us to go. And if we follow his lead, if we follow where Christ is leading us, we will not end at a disappointing waterfall, but we will finally discover what home really is. We shared this quote from Tolkien last week in a letter he wrote. He said, we all long for Eden, and we are constantly glimpsing it. Our whole nature at its best and least corrupted, its gentlest and most human, is still soaked with the sense of exile. Our whole lives are soaked with the sense that there is something missing. We are we are cut off from what God designed us for. And in so many experiences in our life, we will find ourselves out in nature, or we will find ourselves pursuing a dream, or we will find ourselves in community with someone. And even though these things may be good in and of themselves, they disappoint us because their design is not to satisfy us completely with themselves, but to point us to our maker and creator and remind us that there is still something more out there. So Jesus has blazed this trail. In each and every one of us, there is this longing for Eden, a longing to belong and be where we're supposed to be. Now I want to talk about why we don't worship, and I think it will all make sense. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 5. We've covered this many times, but never from this angle. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. We've talked a, a lot over the years about how we already were like God. We were already made in God's image. And so Satan was coming and lying to us even about our very identity to get us to choose something over God. 
But I think all of our problems with worship actually began in the garden. With this, did God really say? Did God really say that we have to worship him? What kind of God, you know, did God really say, questioning God, what kind of God demands that, that we worship? I mean, how insecure must God be if he, just, if he needs us to worship and grovel at his feet? Did God really say, does God really expect us to worship him like that? Did God really say? And then, here, eat this fruit, because when you do, you will be like God. In other words, don't be the kind of person who obeys God. Be your own God. Don't be the kind of person who obeys God. Obey yourself. Don't obey God's rules. Make your own rules. Don't do what God tells you to do. Do what you want to do. You get to decide what's right and wrong, not, not God. Don't be God's servant. Be your own God. Make God your servant. Did God really say? See, I, I don't think the choice that the serpent was giving to Eve uh, was an in-flight snack. Like, here, you can have this apple or this grape. You choose. What do you want? And if you're on a flight, you know, you don't get any snacks anymore. So that's really how Satan's promises work out. Here, endure this long flight, and I'll promise a snack, and I'll show snacks in the commercials. But when you sit down to fly on the plane, you're not going to actually get any. That's how Satan works. That's the serpent's tactic right there. <clears throat> but it wasn't just a choice about snacks. It was a choice about who to worship. Who are you going to worship? Are you going to worship your creator... Or are you going to worship yourself? And what Satan did, what the serpent did, is he played on Eve's desires, played on her desires and prayed on her desires to get her to rebel against God. And so now that Eve has rebelled against God, from that point now until where we stand at this very moment, we have been our own gods doing our own thing and not taking it from God anymore. Last week we talked about the four dirty words in the church. Sin, surrender, submit, and commit. So we're gonna bring them up throughout the course of this morning as this was essentially the second half of last week's sermon. Sin, surrender, submit, and commit. We don't want to worship God. We want to worship ourselves, which is essentially the essence of sin. That is the essence of sin we want to worship ourselves. We are about ourselves, we rebel against God, we're gonna do our own thing, don't tell me what to do, it's all about me, it's not about you. This is the essence of sin, doing our own thing instead of what God created us to do and how he created us to live. Subsequently, because we don't wanna worship God, we don't like the idea of surrender or submission. We don't like the idea of laying down our rights and our lives to God for him to tell us what, uh, what our life is, and then at the same time, we don't like to submit to his will and his desire from this point forward to follow his lead. 
And at the end of it, we cannot be committed to God or his church or worshiping God because there are things that are more important to us in our lives than God. And I would argue that perhaps our, our struggle to be regular church attenders, which it's so much more than just attending church, I hope you heard that last week, it's not so much a scheduling issue, it's a worship issue. We worship ourselves and our desires more than we worship God. That's a hard one to take. But I'm not saying it to offend. I'm trying to help us walk into God's plan for us as a church. Last week we talked about what church isn't. Church isn't about getting my needs met. Church isn't about hearing my favorite worship song. It's not about having my ears tickled with a self-help sermon and hanging out with people who love me. All of those things are a part of what we do, but they have been twisted. And each one, I think, has been twisted, and we've kind of turned degrees away from God's intent for us as his church. But church is about being the bride of Christ on earth, literally heaven on earth, the kingdom of God on earth. These, I think, by, by God's design, are supposed to be transcendent moments that, that rise up above the standard ordinary moments of the rest of the week, and that as we're gathered together, making, making up the temple of God, where, where God's Holy Spirit dwells among us as the living temple here, together. God, God wants this time to be something unusual. Heaven on earth. Church is about exalting and making much of, worshiping our maker and creator. And when we worship we're not necessarily looking to have our hearts stirred. We talked a little bit last week. We, when we come to worship, generally our focus is move me, do something to affect me, stir my emotions, stir my heart, move me on a deeper level than I am normally moved. But, but that's the wrong intent and the wrong focus for worship. Worship is not about moving me. Worship is about us coming together and, and stirring the heart of God or, or moving the heart of God. It is a ministry that we do as a church to God and we come together in perfect unity to offer him our one voice of unified worship. We're ministering. Our responsibility as we gather together is to minister to God, not to be ministered to. Look at, look at these passages. You have them all on your key verses that you can go look up and study in a little bit more detail. But ask the question... In these passages, who are we singing to? Who is the recipient of the worship? Psalm 95.1, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Ephesians 5.19, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. 
So even our speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, or songs from the Spirit, are a singing and a ministering to the Lord. Hebrews 2.12, he says, I will declare your name to my brothers and sisters. In the, sim in the assembly, I will sing your praises, God's praises. Exodus 15, so this goes all the way back to the very beginning. Then Moses and the Israelites sang this song to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Psalm 105, verse 2, sing to him. Sing praise to him. Tell of all his wondrous acts. Colossians 3.16, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and, and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Psalm 98.1 and 2, sing to the Lord, not ourselves, sing to the Lord, not the congregation, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made his salvation known and revealed his righteousness to the nations. And then all the way to the very end, Revelation chapter 4, 14, verse 3, and they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. What we do when we gather together as a church on Sunday mornings is not about, about having our programmatic worship desires met how we wished they would be met. It is about us coming together as one unit, one family, one temple, one body, and worshiping the Lord. So worship and teaching and the service and gathering together aren't about me, my needs, preferences, and desires. They are about ministering to God. So we sing to God. We tell stories about the good things God has done. We tell his story over and over and over again so that together we might align our story with his story instead of trying to get God's story to fit with our story. But these four words, these, these four dirty words keep us, I think, from really being able to experience worship how God created us to experience it. The first word quickly is sin. Sin has a huge effect on our worship as a body. We see this in the Old Testament, Joshua chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. Let me just read these and tell the story really quickly. The story right before this in the book of Joshua is about Jericho. Joshua, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Jericho, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, and the walls came a-tumbling down, right? How was the battle of Jericho fought? What? Dancing and singing and horn blowing. That sounds crazy. And marching around. Yeah, so, so what happened? They, the, the people of Israel, what did God say? To, to march around the city walls how many times? Seven times. And then on the seventh time, what were they supposed to do? blow the trumpets and yell 
and shout. And so they would just, ah! can you imagine? And on the seventh time, what happened? The walls fell in, and without fighting, Jericho was defeated. The next story, Joshua chapter 7, verse 1 through 12. But the Israelites were unfaithful in regard to the devoted things. Achan, son of Carmi, the son of Zimri, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of them. So the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth Aven, to the east of Bethel, and told them, go up and spy out the region. So the men went up and spied out Ai. When they returned to Joshua, they said, not all the army will have to go up against Ai. Send two or three thousand men to take it, and, and, and don't, don't weary the whole army, for only a few people live there. So about three thousand men in the army went up. But they were routed by the men of Ai, who killed about 36 of them. They chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarries and struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people melted in fear and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, remaining there till evening. The elders of Israel did the same and sprinkled dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, sovereign Lord, why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan. Pardon your servant, Lord. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of this country will hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out your name from the earth. What then will you do for your own great name? Then Joshua, or the Lord said to Joshua, Stand up. What are you doing down on your face? Israel has sinned. They have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen. They have lied. They have put them with their own possessions. That is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. We don't like talking about sin. I have a hard time talking about sin. It feels like I'm being unnecessarily offensive when we address issues of sin as they come up in scripture and in our studies. But what changed here in the camp was that someone sinned. Someone did not, did not take special note of the devoted things. 
Instead, they stole them for their own pleasure. Something that was devoted for worship to God, they took away from God and used it for their own personal pleasure. Does that sound maybe a little bit familiar? Something that was supposed to be devoted to worshiping God, they took and used for their own pleasure. Could it be that maybe part of our problem with worship is that we've taken something that was supposed to be devoted to the worship of God and turned it into something to be used for our own pleasure? We have turned worship into something that we consume and use for our own benefit. And God said, unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction, I will not be with you anymore. Devotion is the same thing as commitment, right? We want our own way and we like things our own way. We are committed to our own way. And because we are committed to our own way and getting things how we want them to be, we are essentially committed and devoted to our own destruction. When we gather together to worship as one body, surrender, submission, and commitment are required. It's not just sin that's the problem, but it's surrender and submission and commitment. See, we don't want to surrender to God because we want to be our own God. We still, we still embrace that as a part of who we are. We don't want to submit. We want to go our own way and to do our own thing. We don't want to commit. We want a way out, right? We we, we want to do our own thing, go our own way, and have a way out. And don't you dare try to make me commit. And even if I do commit, don't try to hold me to that commitment. I have the freedom to change my mind. Is anyone feeling really encouraged and blessed this morning? <clears throat> Worship is not about me or my preferences. I spent a lot of time as a worship pastor. We spent a lot of time dealing with preferences in worship. Probably multiple times a week, I would deal with preferences and, and people coming to me furious with me on all sides of the spectrum saying, I need my worship to be this way. You need to give me what I want in my worship. My worship isn't about me or my preferences. Now, this does not mean that we can't worship God in a way that feels natural to you. In fact, this week, in the devotions, we're going to talk about the nine spiritual temperaments so that we can, we can in our personal, private worship, worship God in a way that is uh, in line with how he made us, who he made us to be. So we're going to talk about that this week in the devotions. But, but when we come together, if things have to be a certain way for us to be able to worship, there's still something more important in that moment than worshiping God. Right? If, if, if when we gather together, there still has to be a formula, and if the formula is not met, then we won't be able to worship, then there's still something more important. The formula becomes more important than worshiping God, and that's not how God designed it to be. That's taking the devoted things and using it for our own personal pleasure. So if you're not getting anything out of our worship services, 
you're doing it wrong. Because as we talked about last week, you don't come to a worship service to get, you come to a worship service to give. We don't gather together this morning to get something out of being together for the time that we're together this morning. We come together so that together we can give something to God this morning. I shared this last week, the random churchgoer. Uh, I didn't really like worship today, Francis Chan. That's okay, we weren't worshiping you. When we treat the church like a commodity, we treat worship like a product of service that is being offered to me. When we treat the church like a commodity, we treat worship like a product or service that is being offered to me. And if this product isn't tailored to our specific demands, we feel, we feel justified in expressing our frustrations that we aren't getting what we want. See, we've, in so many ways, made church about getting what we want. It's about getting, getting what we think we need out of church. And that's totally contrary to God's design, because God's design was sacrifice. It was laying your life down. It was surrender, submission, and commitment. And that is how the early church lived that out. And until we really get back to that as kind of the core DNA of what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God and the body of Christ at 6-8 Church, we're going to struggle when we gather together because we're going to try to make this time something that it can't possibly be. Because on a Sunday like today, when we have 40 people in here, there are 40 different preferences 40 different people want 40 different things on a Sunday morning. It is impossible, even with a group of 40, to try to meet the demands and preferences of everyone in the room. The only way to come together with one voice is to die to all of that. This week in the devotional, we're going to cover these eight um, postures of worship. The biggest, the biggest posture of worship we sing in scripture, the biggest vehicle for worshiping is what we do every Sunday, singing. But I'm not a singer. I don't sing, don't tell me to sing. Well, David sang. He was pretty robust as a, as a dude, right? I mean, how many of us guys have killed a bear and a lion and a giant? And then David sang and made music to the Lord. Singing. Number two, bowing your head. We're, we're told to bow our head in worship. Number three, lifting up your hands. This is lifting up your hands in worship. We're told to do that. Number four is spreading out your hands in worship. And I can feel the pushback and the strain and the anxiety already kind of creeping up. What, you're telling me I have to spread up? I have to lift up my hands? Bowing your knee. Now it's getting crazy. Don't, don't go that far, right? So we've got to bow our knee in worship. This one might be a little bit easier, but clap your hands. Clap your hands, all you people. Clap your hands. This is how we worship. Another one is falling on your face before the Lord in a position of complete surrender and submission 
awe and worship and reverence, laying down at his feet. You see that all throughout the Old Testament when God would show up. And the last one was dancing. We're going to spend some time on that this week. And I'm sure some of you are uncomfortable with dancing. I know for a fact that you are. But uh, we'll talk about that. But those are some of the postures of worship that we're supposed to be worshiping God with. And it's a challenge for us. And I think the reason these things become a challenge and a stretch and a strain for us is because we haven't really died to ourselves yet. And we don't really understand that the reason we're here is to surrender and submit and commit. And so we worship. Not because it feels comfortable, not because it's just how I'm wired and that's what I do, but because I was given so much, and how could I just take this gift and not respond in worship? Some of the other things we're going to cover this week in the devotionals, we're going to talk about holy days and Sabbath. These were, these were habits and practices of Jesus. Sabbath was a practice of Jesus. It was one of his habits. Holy days, observing the holy days throughout the calendar year was one of Jesus' habits. So we're going to look at that throughout this week as well. But if we want to be like Christ, we have to live our lives the way that he lived his life. One of the pastors I listen to says, the way of Jesus is a way of life. The way of Jesus is a way of life. It is not just a set of good ideas. It's not just a set of things that we think about and, and, and we make ourselves feel better about, but it's an entirely new paradigm for living and seeing the world. So it's a way of life. We're supposed to live our lives differently. It's not, as so many have said, fire insurance so that you get to go to the good place at the end. It's about actually bringing the good place to earth. It's surrender and submission and commitment. And this was the way that Jesus lived his life. He lived his life in complete surrender, submission, and commitment to the Father and the mission. There was only one instance where Jesus' desires were contrary to the Father's will. And in the end, he chose submission to the Father. So even in instances where we are praying for something that we don't want or something that we do want, and at the end God says, no, that's not what you're going to get, we still have to submit. So it asks us a question, are there any instances in our lives this morning where we're desiring something other than what the Father desires for us? Any area of our life where we desire something other than what the Father desires for us. And if there is, if you can think of something, ask yourself the question, why haven't I submitted to God in that? Why haven't I submitted to God in that? We are the temple of God. We are a living temple. We've talked about. I think we've overemphasized our personal temples and underemphasized the corporate temple. I don't mean to underemphasize the personal temple. We are temples of the of the Holy Spirit. I think you can see this lived out and exemplified by Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost. 
and the, the, the church is gathered together in the upper room praying and waiting for the Holy Spirit to come at this moment at Pentecost when they all are filled with the Holy Spirit, tongues of fire appear over every person's head. And when the t what the tongue of fire, I think, represents is just like in the Old Testament, there would be, remember, anyone remember what would happen when the Israelites were walking through the desert? They would have a pillar of fire by day, or a, a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And so the fire was a part of representing God's presence dwelling among the Israelites. And so what, what I think that then represents in, in the New Testament is that as the Holy Spirit came, there was fire and now the presence of God, the Holy Spirit dwelled in everyone that was there. And then consequently, every single person in that upper room started to speak probably possibly praises to God and they were speaking in different languages so that everyone who was there was hearing in their own language. So yes, I think we can easily make the case that, that we as individuals are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But most of the references to the temple of the Spirit are talking about the corporate community of Christ. And it's all because we tend to read the New Testament wrong. We tend to read all of the yous in the New Testament as singular about us. But most of the New Testament letters were written to communities. They were written to churches, to house churches, to cities. They were written to plural yous, not individual yous. So in Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22, when Paul says, Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. You is plural. but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises up to become a holy temple. And in him, you, y'all, yous, too, are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. There is something that we have missed that is incredibly significant and powerful and deep about our gatherings together on a Sunday morning. We don't come to express our personal worship to God. We come to be the corporate, joined together, unified temple where God's spirit dwells and resides among us. It's not something we can do in isolation. It requires submission. We have to lay down our lives. To be perfectly unified, no one can be fighting for their preferences and their rights. We all surrender and lay down our lives and submit to what God gives us. What if for God to move mightily in our midst this is something that myself and many of us here in the church are praying for. I so deeply desire for us to be a church community where when we gather together on a Sunday morning, it is the expectation that God is going to do something supernatural in our midst. Where, where when we gather together on a Sunday morning, it's like if something weird and crazy and outside the normal doesn't happen, we start to think, oh, that was weird. 
instead of thinking when something outside the norm and supernatural happens that that's weird. I want it to become so normal, so usual, so standard for us to have transcendent moments where we are connected between heaven and earth here at 6-8 Church that it just becomes normal for us to experience God in our midst in this way on a weekly, if not daily basis. But what if, what if to do that we have to be his temple, not our own? What if we've been trying to gather together as a bunch of individual temples, each with a different set of styles and preferences and traditions and feelings, instead of all coming together as God's temple? What if we, what if we just died to all that? And what if we just stopped caring about any of it and we just said, you know what? All I want to do is come together with one voice and minister to God. Wouldn't that be amazing? Wouldn't it be amazing if if instead of kind of feeling this tension like we so often feel and having been in worship ministry for so long, I can tell you as someone that's up on stage, we know by, uh, by some of our actions and reactions, whose preferences are being tickled in a moment? What if that just stopped? And what if, just, what if all of that stuff just, just went away and, and we just decided, you know what? It may not be my style that I choose to listen to throughout the rest of the week. It may not be the song that I would choose to sing. It it may may not be my favorite artist. It may not be my favorite genre. It may not be anything that I would choose. But all that matters is that it's telling me, lift up my hands, raise your hands, worship the Lord, give to God who has given us so much in worship. And I'm going to give no matter what. What if we just decided we're going to respond to God in that way because he has blessed us abundantly? Wouldn't that be amazing if we just all laid everything down and worshipped him in that way? These moments, I believe, when we're gathered together are the closest we will ever get to heaven on earth. That feeling we talked about of home or Eden, I think is closest when we're gathered together with the body of Christ. Many, many of us have talked about how how this just feels like home. How this just, it just feels like our family and, and how sometimes many of us have even said this feels more like family than my birth family. I think this is home for a purpose, that this is this unique moment where it, it starts to echo and resonate and get closer to what our eternal home will feel like. It's where we feel most at home, most at peace, most at rest. I hope what you're starting to hear is some of not just my soapbox, but my passion for us as a church and why to me church is not an obligation. It's not a religious duty. It's not something we attend. It's the bride of Christ, but that's not the whole picture of what's happening here. The church is gathered together to worship and make much of Jesus. We're committed and submitted to the Creator, and it's actually heaven 
on earth. And these moments are transcendent in nature. You cannot experience them in the same way by yourself. So when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I think this is the primary place where God answers that prayer. And what if the reason we haven't seen a great move of God in our time is because we don't really want it? I mean, we talk about wanting God to move, right? And I've talked about, I want God to move, but, but we don't really want it because we want God to move on our terms and in a way that doesn't disrupt our life too much, right? Like, we want God to move, but don't mess up my weekly schedule, don't mess up my weekly routine. So, so God move, God come in power, but I need to be out of here by 12.30 so that I can go and get lunch and get on with my day. What if the reason we haven't seen a great move of God in our time is because we still have our demands attached to it and we're still bringing the problem of the garden into the church today? Don't tell me what I can and can't do. Don't tell me what I can and can't eat. I make my own rules. I'll eat the fruit I want. If we want God to move and I want God to move, we have to be willing to surrender, submit, and commit our ways to him. I'm just about done. I want to say this. I'm not trying to get you to submit to my will or to go on my journey. I'm desperate for us all to be on the same Jesus journey together. I think when we're all going in the same direction, something amazing is gonna happen. So every single one of my efforts here at the church is not to try to get people to believe in me or to buy into me as the leader. It's not, it's not to push my agenda a little bit further ahead. It's not to make a name for myself or for 6-8 church or whatever. I want us to be on the same unified Jesus journey together as one cohesive unit. It's my desire for us to be moving forward together as we follow Christ on the trail that he has already blazed us, blazed for us. And we're just, we're going together on this journey with Jesus. For some reason, some of you may be thinking, I have no idea why God has put me in the position of pastor at 6-8 Church. God does not have another pastor for this moment in mind. If he wanted them here, they would be here. I'm not saying this to get you to say, oh, just to bend you into submission. But I'm saying I believe with my whole heart to the deepest part of who I am, God has me and my family here for this moment. And I think the reason he has me and he has the staff and he has the elders where we are right now at this moment, the leadership of this church are all together on this as he's given us a mission and a vision as a church. He's given us something to, to do. He's given us something to become. That doesn't mean that other churches and other ministries and other ministers are doing things wrong. God has put them where they are and given them a mission and a vision for their ministry. 
But becoming like Christ is the vision that God has given us as a church. And two visions are division. We cannot be about what God has given us and what we each as individuals want at the same time. That is the definition of a house divided against itself. Matthew chapter 12, verse 25. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. I think this is the struggle in so many churches today is that God puts a pastor in a church and gives them a mission or a vision for that church. But then so many in the church want their own thing. And I don't, I don't, I don't push and, and, and prompt and yell and scream for my vision just because I want you to follow me. It's because I believe with my whole heart it is what God has given us to do, that he wants us to look less like Adam and more like Christ, and that on a daily and weekly and monthly and yearly basis, God wants to move us further away from that garden and more towards his eternal garden. He wants us to move away from rebelling against him and choosing the wrong fruit to moving closer and closer to him where we're producing the right kind of fruit, that God has this desire for us to become more and more like Christ. And the only way for us to do that is to follow Christ. We cannot do that by bringing our own agendas into it and trying to force that on God. So what God has given us as a mission and vision to look less like Adam and more like Christ is actually something that I am actively seeking to submit to, to surrender to, to commit to in my own life. I'm not asking us of a church anything that God hasn't also asked of me. I'm just the mouthpiece for what God has given us to do. And I am equally called to surrender, submit, and commit to God's vision for the church. How different would our church be if we laid all of our preferences aside and just worshiped God with our whole heart, our whole mind, and our whole body. How different would our gatherings be when we gather together with one voice and worship? Can you imagine what it would be like if, if we were that wholly surrendered, submitted, and committed body? Can you imagine what it would feel like? I mean, maybe even just close your eyes for a second and imagine. What would that feel like to be a part of a church that's wholly surrendered, submitted, and committed? What would that be like when you walk through the doors on a Sunday morning? What would that be like as you think about your church community throughout the week? What would it be like as you, as you evaluate your priorities for the week and the months and the years ahead? What would it be like if you saw this extreme level of commitment from other people here at 6 8 Church and, and that compelled you to want to be committed? What would it look like if instead of surrendering to your own desires, you sought to surrender to Christ's desires? And if this whole church family at 6 8 Church was just wholly surrendered to the Lordship of Christ? Can you imagine what that would feel like?
Can you imagine what it would feel like when you walked in here? Can you imagine what, what it would feel like when you're having conversations with one another, when we're praying for one another, when we're sharing struggles with one another, even when we're sharing our sin struggles with one another, what it would be like to be surrounded by people who are surrendered and we call one another up out of the sin instead of pushing one another down and condemning one another? What would it be like to be in that community? Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be that church. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be the kind of church that just lays everything down. That we would, that we would even joyfully deal with sin in our lives. That, that we would just seek to to be done with any kind of sin that has a stranglehold on our relationship with you because we know that you have more for us. Father, I pray that, that you would just give us the, the, the desire to surrender, to put up the white flag of surrender and just let you be the Lord and King and ruler of our lives. And then as we have surrendered to your Lordship, that we surrender to your design and your path and we follow you, we submit where you lead us. And that we do this with an extreme and utter commitment, a, a deep devotion, just like the early church when they were living out the most early version of this relationship with God in the new covenant, they were devoted to one another, that we might be devoted to one another in the same way. God, I pray, make us that kind of church. Give us a picture as we worship here at the end of the service of what it could be like to be that kind of church. Give us the courage to pursue it. And when we see someone stepping out for their own preferences to have not only the courage but the grace to step in and say, you know what, that doesn't quite sound like unity, that sounds like individualism. Uh, let's just seek God in this. And to call one another up to a higher standard. To, to call one another up to God's level and desire for this church. Father, help us to be that kind of church. A church full of people, fully surrendered, fully sacrificed. Everything laid down for your kingdom, for your cause. And I pray, Father, that we would just experience more more of your presence, more tangible experiences of you gathering among us, that you would be here not only in our midst, but that we would be surrendered and submitted to your presence and that we would just have this desire to, to do and be and act like you want us to do and that you would just start to take over our times together and you would just start to show up in massive, miraculous, powerful ways and that we would not dare miss a Sunday because we know that you're gonna be there doing something amazing. We ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.